0: As a reminder, content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investor or potential investors in any Inovia fund. Please note that Inovia and its affiliates may also maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, visit inovia.vc. Welcome back to Inova Sessions, your gateway to the world of tech entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Inova Capital Principal, Michael McGraw, coming to you from London. Today, we shift our focus to the bustling tech scene of New York and the challenges and opportunities it presents to startups and established companies alike. In this episode, we sit down with Phil Hutchin, founder and CEO of DICE, to dive deep into the intricacies of breaking into the US B2C market and establishing leadership through network effects. From confronting resistance to navigating stereotypes and securing support from key players, we'll uncover valuable insights that every tech entrepreneur should know. Whether you're planning to venture into the US or are just curious about what it takes, this episode is packed with first-hand experience and pragmatic advice. So without further ado, let's hear from Phil and learn from his journey in the American tech ecosystem. Welcome, Phil.
1: Hi, nice to see you, Mike. Thanks for inviting me along.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, So obviously, first things first, thanks for joining me today. I know you normally don't do interviews because you prefer being on stage, or probably in your case quite often backstage as well. That being said, little birdie told me that you had an interview this morning with BBC Radio 4, so I know the bar is high for me as an interviewer, if I'm right.
1: Yeah, yeah, we'll be judging you at the end, uh, how you <laughs> went against uh, the Radio 4. And the
0: other thing, I think congratulations are in order, right? So you were doing the interview, you just announced a $65 million round. Uh, which is absolutely
1: fantastic. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, it's a, it's a good uh, milestone. And it's a tricky environment right now for funding, but I think that you know, DICE is a bit of an opposite company. So, uh,
0: yeah. For anyone that might not be familiar with DICE, I expect there's not that many people, but can you give us just a quick description <laughs> of the business?
1: I'm sure there's plenty, but the uh, thank you. You know, DICE, uh, I guess, is an alternative uh, way to discover amazing shows, concerts in your city and buy tickets to them. And uh, But in a way that which seems weirdly like sort of normal in any other industry but novel in live entertainment where the price up front is what you pay at the end no scalping we have uh, amazing algorithms that predict what kind of things that you'd like to go to and yeah it's quite you know it's social we started off in in London in 2014 so just under 9 years and it's uh, it's been quite a ride
0: fantastic yeah i mean it's i i've said this often right like your app is probably one of the best ux i've ever gone through and on top of that it probably is even more in contrast to the industry incumbents like i don't know if it's liable if i say names but you know those are incumbents that people (laughs) love to hate in the ticketing industry and i'm sure everyone knows who i'm talking about so i just love dice's mission and love the fact that you know i think first time we met you told us netflix is my biggest competitor and i was like what are you talking about i just want to get people off their couches right And so now you're getting people off their couches on both sides of the atlantic which is amazing before we dig into the specifics of the expansion itself can you just walk us through quickly the business model itself right because there's probably more to ticketing that people can realize in terms of how you build the supply and the demand on both sides
1: our north star was always to have the fan as our only customer when we launched We launched them like, cool, people will just drive to the app and we'll be fine. What we didn't realize is that uh, venues have ticketing deals, uh, often exclusive. And so we figured that out. Primarily, we do deals with venues to be the ticketing partner. And we charge them a fee. So that's kind of built into the, the ticket price. So a little bit like how you would buy something on Amazon. You don't know on Amazon how much they make from the the sale of the toaster. Yeah, so we we, we charge the the person who's putting on the show uh, a fee. Uh, and that's kind of like the ticketing revenue side.
0: Yeah. And so that's the supply, basically, that you're building out. And then on the other side, you build them in demand. and. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, usually in most cases, then the venues will direct all the users towards you, right? So it's not necessarily an SDK model. It's much more of a, you become the hub and then you create a lot of value through
1: discovery afterwards. Yeah, so most um, most of our deals with venues are exclusive. Uh, that means that no one else sells tickets to that venue. Because people always go, you know, why don't you just do deals with artists? Well, there's many artists um, and a way that to think about it is, is one venue that has many artists go to that venue and so as long as we sign the right venues and the right partners we should have amazing inventory uh, amazing shows and so you know there's a mix between you know, business logic but also you need to make sure that we've got good economics we need to make sure that we're going to have the, the right shows uh, at the venue. And also, you know, from our side, like there's two parts of DICE. It's the consumer app that everyone sees, but we also have this enterprise suite, which is what the the venues use to, to manage their events.
0: I love what you do so much. I could talk about that yeah. everywhere you're going to take it. But if we focus a little bit on the U.S. expansion, right, which is basically a core topic today, before even thinking about the U.S., can you just tell me a bit, where were you in Europe? Right, so it started in London and then what?
1: So number one, product market fit. So Everyone talks about product market fit and I'm really um, honed in onto that. We didn't leave London until we really understood how fans use DICE and that the algorithms were working. We're talking like three and a half years until we left the city. And and trust me, it was like super painful for me. Like I really wanted to you know, launch in new cities and do all this stuff. And I was telling everyone we're about to launch somewhere else, but It was important for us that DICE worked in the city, and meant that it's slow at the beginning, but it's made everything else much quicker. Then we went into Paris uh, as our first city outside of the UK, and we were reasonably successful, uh, but we learned a lot. We learned who you should have in terms of driving, a local market, what type of uh, people you need to have on, on the ground, what kind of inventory that you need to get going with. Then we went into Barcelona, Spain, and we did it differently. We went with a really big partner, and that was a huge success. And then once we sort of figured out the Spanish uh, business and how quickly that scaled, that helped prep us for, for the U.S. So we were kind of messing around a little bit in the U.S. We were in Los Angeles so doing some small deals. We were trying to just test the waters um, with the market, but we didn't quite have enough capital to like do it properly. And that happened you know, during the pandemic. That's when we sort of really went in to the US.
0: And so was the timing mostly centered around capital, the chicken and egg, right? Did you say, okay, now I have enough money, I'll do it. Or did you say, now the opportunity is right because of, to your point, COVID created some structural wave whereby some of your competitors were maybe not acquiring as much supply. So you said, this is my time to pounce. Like what came first?
1: Yeah, so when we're looking at when to move, you can overthink it, and sometimes it's just timing. You know, we just raised our Series B in August 2019. Our biggest month was February, and we were booming. We were just about to take off. And, you know, kind of lucky that we didn't. So we weren't, you know, we didn't have like a massive revenue loss because we we weren't super big yet. And so what happened during the pandemic, which was interesting, was a lot of venues that you were know, super busy beforehand, they suddenly had capacity to have a chat to us because there wasn't anything going on. And when they were looking at Dice, they were like, wow, this is so much better. Um, and so you know, weirdly, the, the pandemic, that period uh, enabled us to, you know, particularly in, in New York, go a lot faster because we you know, we were able to talk to a lot of people, switch them over to DICE uh, during that time. And so coming out of the pandemic, um, we went from you know, zero to one and like instantly.
0: That's amazing. I mean, I, I just back to your earlier point, right? Like this contrarian view of market crash is actually such an amazing opportunity in your case. And, and, you know, the timing was right for you to say, I need to capitalize on this. One of the first things you did once you, you kind of decided to both, emotionally, I guess, and operationally commit to the U.S. is Russ, which is your right-hand man, um, the president basically of DICE, moved to New York. Can you just describe a little bit that decision, why Ross, why New York, and, and kind of what that drove for the organization?
1: Russ going to New York, um, and there was like three people there when he went there. I mean, first of all, he went there during the pandemic. He had to go via... I think the Bahamas there's only way to get a visa <laughs> yeah. to get into the country we were really winging it getting yeah. him into into New York but we got him the visa and we got him you know, somewhere to stay and again it's like in hindsight brilliant decision but it just felt at the time like the only decision that we could make because the uh, the deals that were coming into uh, the U.S. were big and he, he wanted to go out there but you know fast forward you know, a couple of years uh, since then, almost up to you know, two and a half years, is that that team now is ninety people, and the culture there is very connected to the culture that we have in London, and he's been able to to do that, and it's almost like for, for me not have to worry about whether they're doing the right thing because it's Russ. You know, Russ is dice. That is something where when i talk to other founders about who kind of ran things i think that either you got to do it yourself or you send your number two i can imagine that being harder to sort of build it from in the u.s doing it with a, a different team because there's just um stuff that you just don't think about which is a second nature that you need to introduce to the culture there
0: you have a lot of unknowns as well right like the stress role of a new joiners is just much higher than having someone that's been there and done that
1: I guess they're also were coming back to London, like he knew everyone. So if he needed anything fast tracked, he could do it. When we're looking at org changes, everything else, the, the trust factor is incredibly high. Um, just just went along with it. So there's a there's, there's a lot there. Yeah. And
0: that, that's actually a great segue, like in terms of businesses, sometimes there can be friction if you always need to report back to the parent company and all the decision making happens there. How do you make sure that the U.S. then has enough autonomy? Is basically Ross can make the calls, and unless it's
1: massive significance, you'll just let him run with it? Even if it's a massive significance, he can run with it. Yeah, so the U.S. Is, or North America uh, is different to any other country that we're in because it's so big. We work in mostly centralized um, for the rest of the world and a little bit of a hybrid uh, with mm-hmm. North America in terms of, reporting lines and you know, time difference, the size of the market, everything else. The US has a lot of autonomy. That makes things you know, initially uncomfortable and tricky because you're trying to figure out oh, who's actually responsible for this or shouldn't I be doing this? Oh, they're doing things differently. But it's because it's a different market. It's a different way of doing things. And I think that you got to adapt to the market as it needs you to do.
0: And that's a great point. right? We've had a lot of Founders both on the podcast and just, you know, ourselves in conversation as as a North American firm, how we advise companies here in Europe. The US is this huge, call it, you know, quote unquote harmonized market, but it's also a plethora of smaller markets, right? So as you were yourself thinking about your expansion strategy, how did you go about defining those submarkets? Did you think about, you know, Quite often when there's regional network effects, it's like tier one, tier two, tier three, or what were the classifications that you used to, to approach your strategy?
1: So because of the nature of life experiences, it's density of the city. So we, we mapped every single city in the US with all the venues, with the demographics, with the spend. We went you know, bottom up and top down in terms of like trying to figure out the whole thing. And then figuring out who's the best partner is to introduce Dice to the city. And then just stack rank them in terms of when those deals are, are coming up and activated the cities when we were ready. What we've seen in New York, because we've got a lot of venues uh, in New York, is that so you've got single network effect within the venue. So if someone goes to a venue and they love the venue and they keep going back, mm-hmm. then you have like the city network effect of, okay, you know someone's taste and they've gone to that venue, then they keep going to all the other venues and seeing shows there. Then you have a little bit of a countryside effect. Uh, network effect where people go to different cities or if they're, they're traveling similar way to like if you go to a new city and use uber like people go yeah. to different cities and we know your taste so like what should you go to if you're in boston or miami and then we do have the more of the the global network effect which you kind of alluded to in, around the artist side where they're going into different cities and around so it's a little bit more of a, a supply side and, and a global
0: Case. And and when you think about launching a city in and of itself, do you think about it in terms of phases, right? Like seating, signing a few X amount of venue and then having critical mass. And then, okay, now we can claim, you know, victory-ish or leadership at least. How, how do you define the timeline?
1: When the right conditions are there for a city, then we go all in and kind of like, you know, set it up. And kind of what I alluded to before is the centralizing of the team and North America and then for for Europe it means that the team in New York can um, basically run the, the whole of you know, North America you know a lot of it we've actually opened up a smaller office in Philadelphia for like support staff you know we did an analysis of different cities because New York isn't an expensive city like London so are there other cities that we could attract talent and retain the dice culture but you know pay people a wage that makes it attractive uh, as well, particularly like around fan support roles and and things like that too.
0: Have you noticed any big consumer behavior changes as you went to the US in terms of engagement, how people respond, transact, discovery, like any big learnings or insights that might be helpful to operators that that are within the B2C world?
1: (laughs) No and yes. No, in terms of like, if you take out the noise, when the noise being the short-fused like New Yorker, <laughs> it's yeah. like
0: it's very loud noise. But once you take <laughs> <Yeah>. that out, <laughs> no offense to any New Yorkers that might be listening.
1: Well, no, I think they're proud of it. Like oh, fair enough. when they when, they, when yeah. they get it, and they're like, "The hell, why do we have to download this app just to buy a ticket?" And, uh, yeah. and then like, "Oh yeah, it's pretty good." <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and and so we're so used to like the angry app review. And then five minutes later, going, actually, it's pretty good. What's fascinating is with music streaming, like listen to music, how global it's become and with social, how global it is. And so the way that we look at it is that because of social, because of music streaming, it's like a global broadcaster and that's like ubiquitous. It's, it's everywhere. And so what is special about a live experience is that um, it's in a, a, you know, a space that only so many people can go into it and it's scarce. And what's fascinating is that, you know, with the algorithms, you know, it took us, as I mentioned earlier, was, you know, three and a half years to like get them to like really be working, you know, smashing it in London. But how they work in every city without us doing anything. And it's just that someone who's into a certain type of music or a certain artist, when you go to a different city, there might be a smaller segment of them, but their taste is pretty identical to what it is in, in a different city. Because we did look at do we need to change the algorithms per city and everything else, but actually we don't. They're almost identical in terms of how successful they are in you know, predicting someone's taste and getting them to go out more. Now there's a subtler thing perhaps here you know, with the US is that we do have a, a language called American you know, within the app, which is things like when you sit and look at the English version of Dice uh, in the US, it feels weird and so we don't say tout we say scalp and we don't say you know there's like things mm-hmm. in terms yeah. of that you know the, the language the you know, the, the, the syntax of the things like to, to make sure that it feels like it's at home and the challenge that we always want to have at Dice no matter what country it's in like to almost feel like the fan thinks that it was made in their city or their country um, with like a little touch of, of Englishness and I think that you know an example of the opposite of that I remember seeing like a French company advertise in London, and they were doing like ads which said you know, you'd be able to guess who the company is but uh, be a geezer, and you're like, <laughs> who talks like this and it's uh, you know and you have to think about these things when you're you're launching in the u s like don't try to sound like you know you gotta yeah that's that that to yes, your, a your, much. Your, yeah. Yeah, or other, otherwise it's just smelly. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, In one interview about the expansion itself, you've actually mentioned that you received a lot of resistance about going into New York. Can you
1: expand a little bit on that? It's like that thing where everyone says it's not going to work. It's an awful idea. Why are you doing it? No one's going to download it. It's never, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then when it's a success, everyone goes, Yeah, of course, of course uh, it worked. It's, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so obvious. And, you know, and in going into New York, we had a lot of resistance where it was a case of dice not going to work here people are used to the fees they won't understand upfront pricing people want to resell a ticket at crazy prices they're used to it and it was just like hang on a minute are you sure about this because everyone that we're talking to are like they're pretty upset about it and you and actually a great thing about social is like you can literally see you know millions of people being upset about it and you know it It did, you know, take a lot of (laughs) just ignoring that noise and keep on moving forward in New York. Like, I know it's different. I know it's strange, but it's going to work. A lot of people said, well, you know, Stop Hub did this 10 years ago, but it's a completely different uh, proposition, uh, different brand, different identity and everything else. And it's like, um, and you know what? It did work. It did work for us. And, you know, being upfront, being fair, you're reinforcing that our repeat numbers are like insane
0: no that's amazing and i mean if we we flip the question on his head, as opposed to resistance like if we look at the support you've gotten where would some of the most significant support come from are there any investors that come to mind How is was your board really helpful
1: with the investment investor makeup of dice now looking back it's it's created you know each investor who came in Had an angle had a superpower of doing things so someone like tony vidal has been brilliant you know really honing in onto our operational excellence like is this actually good enough the product side you know someone like uh, emmanuel cassius who you know really strong on uh, market positioning and and connections uh, in the music industry then we had investors of big artists uh, who came in the early round who you know helped us by insisting that the venue or promoter would use dice and you so it's a kind of a combination of like soft and hard uh, skills in terms of you know, smoothing things over you know relationships are, are um, incredibly uh, important um, you know in in entertainment but the same in any industry I'm sure that call from a board member to show that your company is legit pulling in a favor all that kind of stuff You need to be using all of your angles, Uh, and and the way that I describe with people is like, you know, what what is your cheat mode? Like, how do you like hack this and and get it through? So, you know, you got the best product, you're doing these things. How do you ensure that you're able to get it to the end consumer?
0: Yeah, I mean, in your case, I think what's so interesting is your cheat mode is you might ruffle some feathers, you know, startups usually do, but you're aligning the interests of the industry so much, and you're so. That focused on how can I help the users, the venues and the artists that there's not a lot of people that would want to stand in your way, right? Like so many people stand to benefit from DICE being implemented, you know, incumbents set aside that it's probably relatively not easy. It's never easy, but enjoyable to find the allies, be it through investments or just like people that want to help DICE succeed.
1: Scale helps and we're still on the rise. We still got a lot of work to do. But I think that the best counter argument is like, well, you know, switching costs, like, or cash or whatever else. And so, you know, what what am I losing if I if I do this? I know what you, so you You really have to understand, you know, or emphasize the gains over the losses. You know, what are they? What are they getting by switching um, to you? And that those gains are enormous. And how do you ensure that you eliminate all doubt of them moving over to you? What do you have to prove? Yeah, that's why I said, like you, you mentioned the funding at the beginning is that this is for the next lot of milestones and each milestone is more proof points and more things to like convince more people to come on to it. And it's, it's a constant leveling up.
0: We're approaching the end of the episode. Out of curiosity, right, we've touched on a lot how you build local network effects, the investors. If you look back 18 months in, there's probably a lot of learning is ahead. There's probably a lot of learnings that have happened. What advice would you give to any founders or operators that are kind of early on in that journey or thinking about that journey right now.
1: When I was <laughs> just listening to you just now, uh, and this is like off the top of my head, and, and you were talking about, you know, Ross going in. Uh, let's just talk about the US specifically. I know that some founders go out and do the US themselves. And I I feel like I'm very lucky that it, I didn't, that I was, you know, Ross. You know, as a founder, he's still got so much to do in the core business. You still need to be, you know, raising that, that round, you still need to be um, involved in the product or whatever, you, whatever role that you, you most lean into in the business. And so, launching a country as big as America is all-consuming. And sure, by being in America in the biggest market, it's going to be you know, super impactful. But you know, if your core team is somewhere else, then maybe it's okay to like stay there. I do do a lot of visits to New York ten times a year, but it's like the it is like such a, a big thing to kind of think about I think number two to understand like the scale of America I remember at the start of Dice I was in a, a convenience store and I saw rows and rows and rows of packets of chips, crisps and, and, I, and I was just thinking there's like 10 different packets of crisps that have jalapeno and something on it and, and then I was imagining like behind them and there was like you know in the middle of like illinois or something like there's a factory and like an office and a bunch of people with a whiteboard going how do we like you know break into new york with these and it's just like this is so big and then the flip side happens like when you start breaking through it then the numbers just dwarf everything it's amazing so it's kind of like one of those things like it's incredibly daunting but the reward is obviously you know very very big and then the third thing is like differentiation like I do think that dice is very different to you know what else is out there in our industry and if you're like 10 20 30 percent different to someone else that already exists in america do you have enough differentiation to actually really like conquer it
0: so in closing i think you know you and i caught up over a beer this summer and you were very low-key telling me how you actually made it to the white house so you're by far the founder that's made it to the highest echelons of of the U.S. market, probably on this podcast, unless other people are keeping secrets from me. But um, would love it if you could just kind of quickly tell us how did that come to be? And and for, you know, any founder that's aspiring to do this eventually, any do's or don't?
1: So the first do is to actually just really embrace it. Uh, It was my first time in Washington, the first time obviously seeing the White House, the first time going into the White House and going through security and yeah, you know, going into the green room, and you know, so it was a press conference with President Biden. And then we spoke for about forty-five minutes afterwards uh, on a topic that he's incredibly passionate about, which is like you know, the removal of junk fees. You know, you had uh, Live Nation there, you had Airbnb there, you had Seageek there, and the Aniva uh, uh, reps. I mean, it's it's definitely um, feels stranger today than it did at the time because I was everyone just kept saying to me that um, just live the moment, just just get stuck into it, you know, make sure you get your points across, and you know, it was part of Biden's uh, junk fees act and you know, removing you know all these excessive fees and everything else, all the stuff that we wanted to fix at the beginning of Dice, and so it it was great uh, to be there. And to be, you know, sat next to him going through it, talking about the experience, everything else, it was like, you know, it was a, a really uh, incredible moment. But I didn't really process it until I was on the plane coming back home because I was like, why am I the only non-US person on this panel to, to advise the government on this? And I realized that we were only sort of perhaps, you know, company at this kind of scale that It has just done upfront pricing. And my job was to reassure uh, everyone else, like, doing this is good for business. So it's not just good in terms of, you know, fixing, you know, an economic uh, issue, but it's also, you know, when people think that a price is one thing and it's a different price at the end, they start losing trust in the system. And that's really bad for governments. People get upset and and everything else. in terms of do's and don'ts, I mean, for me, if the do's was just... Yeah, you know, really. You know, um, I mean, I <clears throat> I wrote down what I was going to say to the president. I I hand read it. I rehearsed it. I did everything else. And probably the don't is like when I, we finally got to speak, I didn't recall any of it. I just chatted. <laughs> it was a total waste of time. Um, and so the um, so yeah, it was uh, maybe maybe I could have skipped that part, but. Yeah. Um, or- yeah,
0: they don't. Might be don't tell the customs that you're going to the White House because they're not going to believe you, and then you're going <laughs> to end up in a search room for three hours.
1: Yeah, and uh, yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Mike. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the Just, uh, yeah going to immigration <laughs> and telling them when they ask you what why you're in the country and you are telling them that you're going to the White House to meet the president, that they don't lock <laughs> you up because they think you're crazy, yeah.
0: Just say, for business, that that answers the question. <laughs> yeah, just, <laughs> I'm, I'm, here,
1: I'm, I'm here to make, uh, meet Mike from Minovia. and they're like, yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on, Phil. This was such a blast. I'm your host, Mike McGraw, and it's been a pleasure bringing you to today's episode. Thank you so much for joining me and see you next time.